you're listening to WLPN 105.5 FM Chicago, and you're listening to Labor Express Radio, Chicago's only labor news and current affairs radio program, news for working people by working people. I'm your host, Jeremy Lucero, and this is the Sunday, June 26, 2022 edition of Labor Express. On the last episode of Labor Express, I lamented the fact that I was unable to attend the 2022 Labor Notes Conference that was held in Chicago June 17th through 19th, as I had originally hoped that I'd be able to. That feeling has only grown as I've heard from those who did attend all the really important discussions, meetings, and networking for the labor movement that always occurs at Labor Notes, but that was heightened this year as the 2021-2022 apparent labor upsurge continues. On that program, I also promised that despite my inability to attend, I'd bring you all some audio from the conference regardless, which was made easier this year by the organizers broadcasting several of the conference's major presentations online for the public. And so in tonight's program, I will make good on that promise. Indeed, since there was so much great and really important stuff covered in those broadcasts, I'll be including excerpts on Labor Express not only tonight, but on our next episode as well. Before I continue, I do want to make note of the fact that last Friday, the day before this program was edited and prepared for broadcast, the U.S. Supreme Court eliminated the constitutional right to an abortion in this country. Actually, I feel even though that description may be technically accurate, I feel like it's a euphemism. What I want to say instead is that a far-right dominated court, which was established through the persistent system of minority rule in this country, stripped away bodily autonomy for women and endorsed forced pregnancy. Let's be real. We need to be clear on our language about what is really going on here. It's a counter-revolution targeting women as citizens with full rights, an effort to roll back hard-fought gains and to turn back the clock not just 50 years but over 100 years. Since I began hosting Labor Express Radio almost 20 years ago now, I was always clear that this program is about the concerns of working people broadly, not a simple narrow focus on what traditionally is defined as the labor movement. This program is not just about developments with organized labor, but is a forum whose goal is to address all issues impacting and of concern to working people. Without question, reestablishing patriarchal control over women's bodies and stripping away their full personhood legally is a concern to all working people regardless of gender. Issues of gender and race are in no way subordinate to class, and the liberation of the working class is codependent on the liberation of women, people of color, and the LGBTQIA community. Given this fact and the historic nature of yesterday's developments, it shames me really that I do not have a segment for tonight's program directly addressing the issue. I promise that in our next episode, I will rectify that problem. There just simply wasn't enough time for me to produce a segment for tonight's program within our production deadline. I do want to offer a shout out to the thousands of comrades that have taken to the streets over the last few days. We need this street action and increasingly direct action to continue. I will be out there with you whenever possible and I will try to lend voice to you through this program. So back to Labor Notes. As I said in our last episode, Labor Notes for 43 years has continued to be the leading forum for progressive militants, reformers, and activists in the labor movement, and the best place for working people to share and communicate their experiences of struggle. Both the magazine and the biannual conferences, as well as the many regional gatherings, have been vital to informing, educating, activating, and kindling the best elements of the labor movement. 
This year's conference was particularly important as it was the first since the pandemic and takes place during what is undeniably an uptick in new creative self-activity of workers, if not a full-on labor upsurge. You know, it's funny, another major labor gathering took place the weekend before Labor Notes. The uh, 2022 AFL-CIO convention was held June 12th through 15th in Philadelphia. I apologize to listeners for not mentioning uh, that in the weeks prior. But to be honest, my forgetfulness in regards to the AFL-CIO convention, uh, really what should be the premier event of the labor movement, is I think symptomatic of my general moderate interest uh, in that uh, event, in the shadow of the Labor Notes Conference, which I would argue will play much more of a role in lending aid to those responsible for the nascent labor upsurge. Let's be frank, the rather staid AFL-CIO conventions are scripted affairs in which the outcome is pretty much predetermined. It's an example of the lack of democracy, energy, and militancy in much of the mainstream of organized labor. It's that complacency that Labor Notes was formed four decades ago to confront. That said, the AFL-CIO convention should not be ignored, and it does represent the vast majority of the nation's labor movement, so I will try to address developments from that convention on upcoming episodes. One of the opening panel discussions at the Labor Notes Conference on the conference's first and Friday was entitled Labor Upsurge, How Unions Can Make the Most of This Moment. It was directly addressing the question that I've kind of danced around so far tonight, which is whether or not we are experiencing a historic labor upsurge, and if we are, what are its contours and its potentials? Labor Notes put together an excellent panel to address this topic, representing the new emerging examples of worker self-activity where rank-and-file members of both the Amazon Labor Union and the Starbucks Workers Organizing, Derek Palmer was representing the Amazon Labor Union, and Kyla Clay was there from Starbucks Workers United. Providing academic insight was Ruth Milkman, a sociologist of labor and labor movements from the uh, Cooney School of Labor and Urban Studies. And providing the voice of an experienced union organizer from one of this country's most democratic and militant unions was old friend of Labor Express, Mark Meinster from the UE. Definitely was good to, to see and hear him. Uh, it's been a while. Um, and he's always, of course, uh, has terrific uh, and insightful things to say. And it was certainly the case in uh, this case as well. If we're to define the two themes that dominated the panel's discussions, it was how the exciting new organizing that's going on in non-traditional sectors represents a worker-led approach to union organizing and formation, and the youthfulness of many of those at the forefront of this labor upsurge. All organizing efforts should be and are to some extent worker-led, so that's certainly not a new concept. But the reality is that far too often organizing drives have been overly organizer or union staff driven and directed and in a rather top-down fashion. In the case of the Amazon Labor Union, we see a group of rank-and-file workers who chose consciously to form their own union apart from the larger pre-established unions and their bureaucracies. At Starbucks, the workers' organizing effort is supported by Workers United, a major established labor union, but it also tends to be more rank-and-file driven, unlike far too many other organizing attempts in the past. Another topic that is addressed, particularly by Mark, is defining a labor upsurge and whether or not we are in one currently. The following excerpt is not quite half of the full presentation. It's the first half and begins with Derek Palmer of the uh, Amazon Labor Union, who was asked by Tammy Kim of The New Yorker, the panel's moderator, to address the question of how the Amazon Labor Union's campaign was driven by these rank-and-file workers who chose to create their own union. Um, um, I can say um, about um, 
first of all, the power of uh, workers organizing themselves um, is something that, um, you know, we feel is like the new wave of, of, of organizing, really. Um, you know, it, it definitely helped us a lot. Um, the fact that, you know, like myself, I'm still an active um, Amazon employee. You know, I've been with Amazon for six years. And I know a lot of, a lot of workers in the facility, and um, I think that played a good part because now um, traditionally what happens is when you have union busters or labor consultants, as you call them, um, they're hired by the company to come in there and basically discourage workers um, from signing up or, um, or voting when it's time to vote. So now you have these captive audience meetings, which traditionally always have a strong impact on workers' influence. So now you have like people like myself and, and other workers of the ALU who are able to pretty much counteract what they're saying in these meetings, which speaks volumes. And you know, I was one of the first people to actually do that in JFK 8. And it, all it did was transcend throughout um, the different um, meetings that they had throughout the day. Um, so once I started doing it, other workers started doing it. Um, so now all these workers are wondering, what's, what's this about unions? You know, because a lot of young workers don't really know about unions. So now after that, after they're engaged, now we give them the education that they need. And ultimately, um, that, that played a huge part. Um, also, the fact that we were holding um, barbecues outside, you know, directly across the street, at the bus stop, you know, that helped out a lot because now we're, we're creating like a family oriented um, environment. So now these workers are comfortable with even talking to us instead of just saying, here, sign this authorization card. Now we're creating a, a nice environment. And now after that, they're able to actually talk about their issues openly, which is, you know, they never get that opportunity to do that at Amazon. Managers aren't going to come to work and say, hey, like, how was your day? Like, how can I make your day better? You know, so like this is coming from a genuine place, worker to worker. So now that direct, you know, that direct um, relationship that we're having with them, you know, it, it, it speaks volumes and it's been helping out a lot. Um, also, the fact that we've been handing out T-shirts, you know, that that's that's huge because um, workers were initially scared to wear these these T-shirts. The more organizing that we did, you know, during our campaign, now you gradually start seeing workers wear the T-shirts. They're speaking out, and they feel like they have a voice. So um, that that's definitely um, important to have a worker-led movement. And I think moving forward, other Amazons that want to organize, you know, they should definitely do worker-led for sure. And Kyla, your your guys's unions organized a little bit differently. Starbucks Workers United worker-led, but is sort of affiliated with a larger union, but maybe a kind of smaller part of a larger union, which has given you guys some freedom. Can you talk to us about that, the anatomy of that process? Yeah. Um, so I think for a lot of us, when we first started this, we didn't know much about what a union is. Um, I'll be honest, I was Googling what is a union in about October. Um, and so I think that, you know, there wasn't really much of a conscious decision as to, you know, whether to be affiliated or not. But there was always a conscious decision to make this worker-led um, the whole way through. So although we do have this affiliation with Workers United, we've been very fortunate to have it still remain partner-led. Um, at Starbucks, we call each other partners. Um, 
And so Workers United has primarily been support for us, you know, with litigation issues, um, with making sure that we have resources, uh, but they've been very much uh, deferring to the workers throughout this process. So, you know, as, um, as Derek was saying, there's, you know, nothing like uh, the power of workers organizing. I think it's this worker-led type of movement that cannot be beat. Um, one of the ways that we've done this, too, is, you know, a lot of the, the things that were told by Starbucks during these captive audience session meetings, these one-on-ones, is that the union is a third party. The union is a third party. And during those captive audience sessions, I would tell our, our vice president of the region, Amy Tingler, I'd say, Amy, the union is us. Can you please call the union the baristas? And the reason that I say that is because throughout this whole process, it has been the workers who are making the leaflets. It's the workers who are filing the stores. It's the workers who are preparing for these captive audience sessions, getting their votes together. We, we really keep it within our, our, our hands the whole way through, and Workers United supports that, so that way we're able to be as successful as possible. Um, but I think that the... the main reason we have been successful is because we've kept it focused on the workers. Ruth, you've written a lot about generational trends in organizing, and I'm wondering if you have observations on, you know, these two movements or other things that are kind of popping up in the news right now in the labor world. Um, a lot of people have commented that they seem to be led by young people, that there are generational and sort of structural dimensions to why this is happening among young people. Could you talk to us about that? Sure. Yeah, the generational thing. Well, this conference is a pretty good illustration of that. I don't think there's ever been a Labor Notes conference skewed so much toward young people, and it's really wonderful to see. Um, <laughs> and, and if you were in this room for the last session on Starbucks, I don't know about you, but as one of the gray-haired people here, I was very struck by the, um, with one exception, the extreme youth of the panelists, and I think that's fairly representative of the campaign as I understand it. So what is this about? Um, I, I, I've written a lot about this, like Tammy said, so I won't go on and on, but I just want to say that what we've seen, I think since basically 2011, or maybe since the Great Recession, starting with Occupy Wall Street, followed by Black Lives Matter, other social movements, and now a new surge of unionism, it's a generation that has kind of been, had the rug pulled out from under them um, in the United States with growing inequality, growing precarity of employment, um, growing student debt, on and on. All these things that um, collide with the expectations that now a few generations, I guess, starting with Gen X, Millennials, now Gen Y, um, have been led to expect that if they went to college and did what they were supposed to do, the world would open up to them, and instead they end up working at Amazon or Starbucks and, you know, being treated very poorly by managers and all the rest of it. Um, and, well, Stephanie and I and another colleague of ours, Penny Lewis, documented for Occupy the demographics being skewed toward college-educated young people. And I think we're seeing that over and over again in many of these um, waves of union organizing, starting with actually higher education. Some year, It's been going on for quite a while now. This is the extreme case, graduate students, adjuncts, people with PhDs who are employed at the minimum wage or less <laughs> to teach college classes, right? 
they're, they're not easily intimidated by all the managerial BS, right? Um, they, they know better, and plus, the jobs are not that great, so the risk of being fired is maybe not that strong. Now, that's especially true this year with the labor shortage. Unfortunately, that's not likely to last. Journalists, another example. The wave of teacher strikes, K through 12, were led by young teachers. Obviously, teachers are all different ages and all college educated. Um, and now we're seeing it in these campaigns you just heard about and elsewhere, Apple, REI, um, and more, museums, nonprofits. All of them are, the leaders anyway, are young and highly educated. So to me, that is really important. And um, even at Amazon, I think the overall workforce maybe is not so college educated, but many of the leaders seem to be. I, I have, um, I, I know, for example, of some of the African immigrants who work there, who've been active in the campaign, have PhDs or were journalists in Africa or whatever. So anyway. Um, Initially, this whole phenomenon did not include unionism. It, that's pretty recent, but now it does. And I think the labor movement... Anyway, now this generation has the union bug. And it is remarkable because, you know, as Kayla told us a minute ago, what do they know from unions in many cases, right? But now it's spreading. And so I think, you know, this is a moment, and we hope it's the beginning of a major movement. Mark, I want to bring you into the conversation to talk about this notion of an upsurge. As I mentioned, Mark wrote this fantastic article in Labor Notes um, that cites the work of Dan Clausen um, to talk about what a labor upsurge means, what the sort of historical moments of labor upsurge can tell us about labor upsurges. And um, I, I was rereading it, and I remember that you make three key recommendations in that article. More strikes. You need a large number of activated workplace leaders, and you need worker independence from large mainstream unions that may be risk averse. So, Mark, could you kind of take us through, you know, why you structured the article that way and who Dan Clausen is? Sure. So, uh, so Dan Clausen uh, was a sociology professor and, and labor activist at UMass Amherst, uh, and uh, he wrote a book uh, published in uh, 2003 called The Next Upsurge. And, uh, there have been other scholars who'd written about this before, but this book really sort of popularized the notion that, um, you know, m clarifying that unions do not grow uh, incrementally. Unions do not grow sort of on a trend line that looks, you know, like this. Unions grow in big spurts when millions of people join the labor movement uh, over the course of a short period of time. Um, and so, and he goes on to talk about some of the reasons why that is and, and some factors that might be, you know, uh, instructive for people looking at this. Um, but uh, one of the things he says uh, is that you're not, you don't know you're in an upsurge when an upsurge is happening. You're not going to know until you look back four, five, six years later. And so we can't know if we're in an upsurge. The other thing he says, and, and this is, I think, true, is that you can't manufacture an upsurge. There's a whole range of all kinds of different forces, social forces, economic forces, uh, political forces that go into whether something like that will happen. But you can look at upsurges throughout history. And the two big ones in the 20th century here were the upsurge in the 30s that built the industrial labor movement. Uh, and the upsurge in the 1960s and 1970s, where waves of public sector workers uh, joined the labor movement. 
you can look at, and, and you can see this, this happens, the same dynamic in, you know, all across the world, Italy, Spain, Korea, South Africa, Brazil, Chile, and you see some common factors at the beginning of those upsurges. So one of them is a willingness to take risks, audacity. Don't underestimate the importance of just being audacious, including the audacity to put forward really bold demands uh, that go above and beyond what others in the labor movement might be demanding. You've got to be willing to lose if you're going to take risks. And many upsurges uh, you know, are preceded by years and years of failed strikes. So for example, in the 1930s, um, the big upsurge in 1936, 1937 was preceded by years in the early 1930s of huge, massive class battles that were all lost uh, from 1930 to 1933. Uh, but people learned during those losses, and those people became, in many cases, the cadre that, that built the, the Congress of Industrial Organizations, the precursor to today's AFL-CIO. The second thing is strikes. You don't see an upsurge without massive strikes, and strikes that that challenge labor law, that break labor law, that in many cases are not protected by any you know, affirmative right to actually go out on strike. Union elections are not the thing that typically signals an upsurge, it's typically strikes. And one of the things you see is that those strikes beget other strikes. The militancy catches hold. Uh, and you see it start to spread. And you saw that in the 30s, and you saw that in the 1960s with teachers in New York striking, uh, and then that catching on throughout the country and building a whole movement of teacher unionism in this country. Then the third thing would be what we just heard about, <clears throat> workers taking the process into their own hands. You can't have an upsurge uh, relying on paid staff. Paid staff don't create an upsurge. An upsurge happens when millions of workers take the organizing process into their own hands and run with it and communicate it and transfer it to other workers uh, who take it and run with it. You saw that with sit-down strikes, for example, in the 1930s. You often see new organizations develop, um, you know, new networks, new formations, new, uh, you know, federations, or you see really sharp challenges within existing organizations, but it's typically not sort of the mainstream of the labor movement that's in leadership that's leading the charge during an upsurge, uh, although they typically will get involved after. And then you see a big role of the left, whether it's the organized left or sort of the broader social movement left uh, in these upsurges. And so because you often aren't getting support from the established labor movement, you know, the big unions out there, People who are politically committed to the idea of, you know, workers fighting in, in workplaces and building strong, powerful, militant unions, um, you know, help out and they provide resources, whether it's legal support or um, picket line support or organizing training or uh, money or whatever it might be. You need that social force uh, as a resource, especially when you don't have the full backing of the rest of us in the labor movement. There's got to be a center of gravity that exists separate and apart from the mainstream of the labor movement for an upsurge to happen in, in, in many cases. Um, and so, you know, we've seen many of those factors at play here. 
Um, you know, we've seen strikes at Starbucks, right? We've seen a new organization come to the fore at Amazon. Um, you know, again, we've certainly seen workers take hold of the process. Um, you know, there are some major obstacles still that we have to overcome to make this really, really big, but that's clearly what we should all be thinking about, I think, right now, is how we scale this. Because when you look at upsurges, there are individual people who did specific things at the beginning of all those upsurges that made it into an upsurge. Can't always predict what those are and what, whether, they're wor whether they'll work, but it's the people in this room and the people like us who are gonna make this, this moment become an upsurge. Um, so taking off from that, Kyla and Derek, do you guys wanna talk about the direct action strategies you've been taking at your workplaces? Mark mentioned that a lot of Starbucks stores have gone on strike, shutting down business. Um, that's been true in Kyla's area and across the country. Um, and Derek, I know your guys' movement really started with these COVID protests and walkouts. So yeah, maybe talk about those, those direct action strategies and how they've helped build your organizations. Um, well, the, uh, the walkout that you're referring to um, that happened in 2020, uh, March, March 30th, um, which led to Chris Smalls being fired and um, also other organizers. Um, I mean, that's that's really it. That's how we got here, really, if you're thinking about it. Um, that's that's the beginning of AOU. We just didn't go by the Amazon Labor Union. You know, we do a Congress of Essential Workers. Um, so, yeah, I, I do agree that um, we, knew we need to take more, you know, steps towards striking and collective action. I mean, we've we've done that. Like, we've done marches to the boss's office, and, you know, we've always raised concerns. Um, so that that's what we we've, we're, we're building right now is doing these small actions and then turning it into large actions. Um, and, and also right now, the pressure that we're going to put on Amazons across the country, you know, it's going to be big because we have 100 buildings that have been reaching out to us and want to start organizing. So, yeah. <laughs> So that's um, that's how you really put the pressure on them. You get all these facilities to start, you know, start organizing. And, you know, what is Jeff Bezos and Amazon going to do when all 100 of the buildings are, are organizing? You know, so, um, you know, the pressure, this pressure that has never been seen before. And, um, you know, we're proud to say that we're going to be the ones to do it. And, um, you know, we're just going to keep fighting. And you know, the workers are getting empowered every day. I'm getting DMs, we're getting messages from these workers, and, and uh, the, the country is awake now. You know, it took the pandemic for it to happen, um, but I think the country is awake now, and we're, we're just tired of the bare minimum. You know, now it's time to really fight, and, you know, as you can see in this room, all these people here, they're, they're motivated, and I think um, this, this moment right here is the biggest moment right now in, like, the labor movement in a long time, and we're going to go full force. Um, I, you know, I couldn't agree more that there's been such a, um, a union bug, if you will, <laughs> going around, um, you know, whether it be from just simply filing for election. I know as soon as my store filed, someone in this room right now reached out to us via email as well as like 15 other people and it just kept growing. Um, and when it comes to direct action, I think that's really what we're trying to normalize at work right now. We're trying to normalize the word strike, um, normalize walkouts, because I think that's something that for so long we haven't really seen, um, at least in my generation. And so, you know, in a way it's almost kind of good that we haven't seen this because 
you know, we don't have anything holding us back, really. Um, I have a, a dear friend of mine who's been organizing in Seattle, and um, her store had not yet been certified, and they went on a ULP strike. She didn't know this, but she found out the next day that that was actually a very big deal. And she told me, I'm actually quite glad that I didn't know this, because had I known, I probably wouldn't have done it. And so I, I think in a way, you know, we're really pushing against what the status quo of organizing has been, but we don't really know that we're doing it. And I think that's been quite successful. And um, and really quick, just to explain what a ULP strike is, is a ULP stands for an unfair labor practice. So if, you know, if your employer is, is violating the law um, when you're trying to unionize. Um, but We've also had other types of strikes as well. In Boston, we had a store um, called Cleveland Circle. They went on strike because their, their ceiling had a leak. Um, apparently, it had been raining in their store for several years. But one day, it started raining even more, and the leak was just unbearable to the point where it was completely unsafe. Um, the water was going all over their espresso machines, into people's drinks and their food. They actually, um, they showed me a picture of it, and the water was dark yellow. It was, it was disgusting. And their manager just walked out in the middle of this and let them try to figure it out on their own. And the manager made a mistake and sent them all home that day, and all of their workers got together that day. And I got a phone call like halfway through, and they said, I think we want to strike. And it took less than 12 hours for us to get them all ready to go to strike. And I think that that willingness to strike is because we've seen it happening now. Like we're seeing other Starbucks stores do this. We're seeing these walkouts at, with Amazon and we're thinking, hey, we, we can actually do something that will hurt our boss and make them listen to us. And right now as we're, we're filing more and more stores and we're preparing more and more stores, you know, Howard Schultz just announced that they're not going to give benefits to stores that filed to unionize. Um, well, come August 1st, when those, those benefits come out, I think partners are going to be ready to take direct action. And I think that it's going to be a more wide-scale action than we've seen before because we feel empowered to do that now. You're listening to Labor Express Radio News for Working People by Working People. As I mentioned earlier, uh, that was just the first third to half of the panel discussion. There's much more. You can uh, hear or see, actually, the uh, full uh, presentation at the Labor Notes website. I have a direct link to it up at laborexpress.org if you want to check it out. Indeed, there's a ton more really excellent stuff from the 2022 Labor Notes Conference online. So check out the links that are up at laborexpress.org. We need to take a brief station ID break, but when we return, Bernie Sanders made a powerful speech on the state of the class struggle in America at the Labor Notes Conference. It's something I know our listeners won't want to miss, so make sure to stay tuned. You're listening to Labor Express Radio, which calls only labor news and current affairs radio program. On today's program, I'm airing a couple of audio excerpts from the 2022 Labor Notes Conference. In the first half, you heard one of the opening panels from Friday, the opening day of the conference, addressing the issue of labor's upsurge, how unions can make the most of the moment. Another highlight of the opening day of the conference for attendees was the visit by Democratic Socialist U.S. Senator Bernie Sanders. Sanders is an old friend of Labor Notes, so it wasn't too surprising to see him there. 
Now, I debated how much time I originally wanted to give uh, Bernie's speech, given the amount of excellent audio from the conference uh, that the organizers have made available, and uh, plus my general reticence to offer too much airtime to politicians on this program. This is meant to be a forum for working people, especially the uh, rank and file of the labor movement and union staffers or elected leaders that represent the best of organized labor in this country. But Sanders is undoubtedly different, I think, uh, you could argue, from the vast majority of mainstream politicians. As the nation's sole socialist senator, and indeed for many years until actually recently, really, uh, the only openly socialist politician at the federal level, and as one of the uh, most consistent and forceful voices calling for a working-class-focused and driven politics in this country for now over 30 years, Sanders stands practically alone as an example of the type of political leadership that the labor movement desperately needs as an ally in the halls of political power. It is, of course, undeniable that the success of the labor movement is either critically aided or hampered to the extent that it has a political force of left-wing representation in government. So in this case, I felt maybe an exception to my rule about uh, not focusing on politicians was warranted. I also originally thought I might try to edit the speech and only provide highlights so as to open space for the equally, if not even more important, uh, critical voices from the conference. But as I listened to Bernie's speech a couple of times, I struggled with what to cut, and uh, the entire speech was such an excellent overview of the situation of the American working class uh, presently faces and the uh, movement that we need to build to overcome it that I basically decided uh, to air the whole thing. So what follows is Bernie Sanders' speech at the 2022 Labor Notes Conference, almost entirely unedited. If you are listening to the podcast version of this program, you'll also hear a short, really powerful presentation by Chris Smalls of the Amazon Labor Union, who is sort of a warm-up act for Sanders. Uh, unfortunately, I had to cut that for time for the radio broadcast. You look great. And there are a lot of you. And together you're going to transform this country. Let me begin by thanking all of our speakers, Chris and Sean and Sarah and everybody else. Let me thank all of you for being here because I know that many of you are in the forefront of the grassroots activism that we need to transform this country. So thank you for what you're doing. And let me thank Labor Notes, who year after year have been standing up for working families from one end of this country to the other. Labor Notes, thank you. What I want to do is to give you a brief look at where I think we are today. And the bad news is, and it's something that you are all familiar with, and that is that today our economic and political system is working great if you are a billionaire. 
It ain't working so great if you are working for a living. In fact, many of our working people are falling further and further behind. Today, we have in our nation, and what I'm telling you is you know, but many Americans don't know because the corporate media ain't telling them for obvious reasons. But you know that we have more income and wealth inequality today than at any time in the history of our country. We have more concentration of ownership than at any time in the history of our country. We have more corporate greed than at any time in the history of our country. And we have a political system that more than ever is dominated by super PACs and the billionaires who fund them in both political parties. That is, that is the economic and political reality of our time, and that is the reality which, for the sake of working families across this country and for future generations, together we must and will change. Now, CBS and NBC and the New York Times and Fox aren't going to tell you about corporate greed, so let me do it for them. <laughs> corporate greed is when two people, Mr. Musk and Mr. Bezos, that's right, own more wealth than the bottom 42% of our population. Corporate greed is when 1% own more wealth than the bottom 92%. And I'll really tell you what corporate greed is about. We are going through a terrible, terrible pandemic. We all know that. It has taken over a million lives in our country. So many people have become sick, have long COVID, etc. And during this period, when working people went out to work to keep the economy going, when 5,000 nurses died taking care of us, when grocery store workers and bus drivers and people in warehouses and people in factories died to keep the economy going, 700 billionaires increased their wealth during the pandemic by $2 trillion. That's corporate greed. That's right. Corporate greed is today about CEOs of major corporations making 350 times what their workers are making. Corporate greed is about, during the terrible war in Ukraine, during the breakdown of supply chains, large corporation after large corporation has been raising prices substantially 
as their profits are soaring. Corporate greed is about a rigged and corrupt tax system in which in a given year, billionaires do not pay a nickel in federal income tax. And when we talk, that is right, criminal is the right word. And when we talk about concentration of ownership, I want all of you to appreciate this. Today, in this country, there are three, one, two, three, Wall Street firms, BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street, that control assets of over $20 trillion, which is equivalent to the GDP of the United States of America. Three Wall Street firms control hundreds and hundreds of corporations all over our country and around the world. That's right, part of it. And when we talk about corporate greed, we're talking about drug companies raising their prices while one out of four Americans cannot afford the prescription drugs their doctors prescribe. And let me give you an example. I mean, it is so out of control that it really, literally is hard to believe. Give you an example. The CEO of Moderna recently received, got this, a $926 million golden parachute. Now, can you believe it? We are fighting and struggling to make sure that our people are vaccinated in this country and around the world. Federal government puts two and a half billion dollars into Moderna to develop a vaccine, and this guy walks away above and beyond his other stock with over $900 million in golden parachute. That is how corrupt and criminal the system is. Now, that's what corporate greed is doing to consumers. Let me say a word about what it is doing to workers. During the last several years, my office has been involved in many, many strikes around this country. We stood with the UAW, who went, on, who went on strike in Iowa, Illinois, and Kansas. We stood with the United Steelworkers, who went on strike at Special Metals in West Virginia. We stood with bakery workers, bakery workers, who went on strike at Kellogg's and Nabisco. We continue to stand with the United Mine Workers who are still on strike at Warrior Met. And we stood with UFCW 
who did a tremendous job taking on Kroger grocery stores in Colorado. And here is what I learned that I really did not fully appreciate before we got involved. And that is that in every instance of these strikes and many others, these strikes were provoked by corporations owned by large conglomerates who were making huge profits. This is not a moment when a company goes to Sean and say, look, you know, we're falling apart, our revenue is down, we need to sit down and talk. These are companies today that are making huge profits. And then they go huge, that's the word. And then, then they go to their workers and they say, we want you to take mega pay raises and we want to make massive cuts to your health care benefits. Just, just today, I visited with striking UAW workers in Racine, Wisconsin, and Burlington, Iowa. They are striking against a company, Case New Holland Industrial, that is owned by Exer, a Dutch holding company, which in turn is owned by the Agnelli family, one of the richest families in Italy, worth some $19 billion. And this is what we're talking about when we talk about corporate greed. This company is enjoying record-breaking profits, and now they are going to their workers demanding massive cutbacks in health care, including a $13,000 deductible for family health care. Which is basically meaning no health care at all. Now, the wealth and the power and the greed of the corporate elite is the bad news, but here is some very good news. And I know that it is news that you have been hearing all day. And that is what we are seeing in a way that we have not seen for many years is not only workers standing up and fighting back by going on strike, but a level of organizing effort that we have not seen for a long, long time. We are seeing workers taking on billionaires and telling them they ain't going to get away with their greed anymore. And that's the case at Amazon. Chris and his allies are taking on the second wealthiest guy. And the folks at Starbucks are taking on another billionaire, Howard Schultz. But I want you to know it's not just blue-collar workers, it's white-collar workers as well. We're seeing people organize the adjunct faculty at MIT. Yeah. 
in my city and in other large hospitals around this country, resident doctors. Young, young doctors, often with enormous student debt, have voted overwhelmingly to form unions because they don't want to work 80 hours a week for 60,000 a year. Furthermore, maybe most importantly, you know, I know that the corporate media and the mainstream politicians say that those of us in this room are radical, we are unrealistic. But the truth of the matter is, in many senses, they are the people who are extreme, not us. So I want you to know, I want you to know that poll after poll shows that on every major issue that we are fighting for, the American people in some cases overwhelmingly are with us and our agenda. The American people understand that health care is a human right. They want Medicare for all. The American people want us to take on pharma and cut prescription drug prices in half. The American people are demanding that Congress act to make sure the wealthiest people in this country start paying their fair share of taxes. They want us to address the crisis in childcare and in pre-K. They want to build the millions of units of affordable housing we desperately need. They want us to cancel student debt and make public colleges and universities tuition free. They want us to raise the minimum wage to a living wage, more than 15 bucks an hour. And they want us to create millions of jobs, transforming our energy system away from fossil fuel and helping to save this planet for future generations. In other words, the American people are telling us that they want a government that represents everybody and not just billionaire campaign contributors. <laughs> the last point that I want to make is that the time is long overdue for us to take on and challenge the uber-capitalist culture of today. You know, hundreds of thousands of people 
have criminal records in this country today for the quote-unquote crime of smoking marijuana. Yes, we will legalize it. But, but, and this is what I mean about our current culture. Smoking marijuana in a number of states today is illegal. But I'll tell you what's not illegal. It is not illegal for the heads of major oil and coal companies who knew 40 years ago that their product was helping to destroy the planet. And what they did with that information is to fund organizations who lied about the reality of climate change. It is not illegal for the heads of drug companies to raise prices so that millions of people cannot afford the medicine they desperately need and some of them die. That's not illegal. There was a study that came out today from Yale, and the estimate is that 338,000 people died during the pandemic unnecessarily because we do not have Medicare for all. Over 300,000 people, but it is not criminal for those people to spend huge amounts of money continuing the corrupt and dysfunctional health care system that we have. So brothers and sisters, we are in truly a pivotal moment in American history. And our job, our job is to bring the working class together Black and white, Asian American, Native American, gay and straight. Our job is to bring our people together. Around an agenda that says we are going to put an end to this outrageous level of corporate greed and in fact, we are going to provide the working families with the respect, the dignity, and the security that they deserve. Thank you all. Very You're listening to Labor Express Radio, which calls only labor news and current affairs radio program. Unfortunately, that's all that we have time for tonight, but you can hear and uh, see actually much more from the 2022 Labor News Conference unedited online so just go to laborexpress.org for links to that and as i said at the top of tonight's program our next episode will include more excerpts from the conference so make sure to tune in for that in two weeks time labor express is a non-profit 501c3 member of ibew local 1220 those expressed on labor express are those of its producers not necessarily those of ibew labor express is a production of the committee for labor access in chicago the world capital of the labor movement labor express is a proud member of the labor radio and podcast network working people's voices broadcasting worldwide 24 hours a day find out more at laborradionetwork.org 
The song we just heard, our theme was called Worker Song. It was written by Ed Pickford and recorded by the Dropkick Murphys. Tune in every Sunday at 8 p.m. or Monday at 11 a.m. on 105.5 FM or lumpenradio.com for more Labor Express. Thank you. 